welcome to the preaching ministry of the Agape Baptist Church in George, South Africa. All right, it's good to be with you this Sunday morning. I sort of recognize some of you and others of you look like you're only about half here, you know, so... It's good. I love what you've done with the place um, <laughs> since I was last here. <laughs> and I assure you that these bluish lights add about 10 pounds. So <laughs> it has nothing to do with the fact that I've been locked in my house for several months. And the only really thing interesting there is what's in the fridge. So uh, it has nothing to do with that, I assure you. Uh, it is good to be here with you. Um, when I heard there was an opportunity, and I actually had scheduled Brother George to speak at our church today, so I thought, well, I might as well come through. I wasn't sure why Pastor Bryant had asked me to come, other than I think he forgot what I looked like after the, uh, it's been so long since I've seen him and many of you with uh, lockdown and uh, not, not traveling so much, so it is good to be with you, and I do bring you greetings from the congregation of um, Nisna West Bible Church. That's where uh, we are. Uh, we meet in my house, so you think it's a challenge to socially distance here, try meeting in your living room. So um, we're doing what we can, but uh, it's just, it's not as big as this. So it's a challenge um, by times. Uh, in First Chronicles, you don't have to turn there, but in First Chronicles chapter 13 to 15, we have the story of the Ark of the Covenant's return to the city of Jerusalem. King David had decided to move the capital of Jerusalem uh, the capital of Israel from Hebron to Jerusalem to sort of unite the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom together there really wasn't a kingdom but they were sort of uh, tribes that were living in these areas and David wanted to unify them together and so he moved the national capital to the city of Jerusalem and one of the things that he wanted to do was move the ark of the covenant from where it was in Kiriath Jerim um to Jerusalem, and so he began this process. You remember what happened, I think. Um, he built an ox cart, this brand new ox cart. Now, I don't know what a used ox cart would look like, but David went all out on this occasion and built a brand new ox cart, and he placed the Ark of the Covenant on that ox cart, and it began to trundle its way along from Kiriath-Jerim up to the city of Jerusalem, where it was going, and they made it about as far we're told as the threshing floor of Chidon when Uzzah put his hand out to steady the Ark of the Covenant, lest it fall off this new ox cart into the dirt. Well, Uzzah was struck dead on this occasion. And it so upset King David that the Ark was taken from the threshing floor of Chidon and put in the house of Obed-Edom. David stopped the procession. There was not any more procession going up to Jerusalem. And the ark for the next three months sat in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, which was nearby the threshing floor of Chidon. After about three months, David came again. He must have checked his Bible. And he realized, oh, wait, we don't transport the Ark of the Covenant on an ox cart, whether it's new or not. We get Levites to transport the Ark of the Covenant. And so with grand possession, the Ark is taken from the house of Obed-Edom and carried up to its resting place on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, where David had built a tent for the Ark of the Covenant 
to rest in. It was there in that tent until the construction of Solomon's temple. You remember that. And then it was finally placed in the Holy of Holies where it sat until sometime later when Jerusalem was, of course, overthrown. Now, Jewish tradition tells us that on the occasion of moving the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom up to its resting place on Mount Zion in the city of Jerusalem, that the people who were carrying, who were part of that procession, Jewish tradition tells us that they sang the words of Psalm 24. That was the song that was sung as the ark made its way up the slopes of Mount Zion to its final resting place. Oh, this is a good song to sing on such an occasion, but I think this song, the 24th Psalm, actually has a much larger, much more significant meaning than just a matter of celebrating the return of the Ark of the Covenant to its final place, its final resting place on Mount Zion. So I would like to consider, reflect, maybe would be a better word, on Psalm chapter 24 to see if we can't discern a bigger purpose for this psalm than just a psalm of ascent as the ark was carried up to Jerusalem. Merriam-Webster's Dictionary of the English Language defines a reflection as a consideration of some subject matter. And so this morning, I think that's a good word, to reflect, to consider for a few moments the contents of Psalm 24 and what they actually mean. This psalm, follows, of course, the most famous of all psalms. The scripture reading at our service in Nisna this morning will be Psalm 23. And you could, many of you, quote that psalm by memory, I'm sure. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You know how it goes, you're already saying it in your head. But Psalm 23 is so popular that Psalm 24 often doesn't get read. We go right to Psalm 23. And yet Psalm 22, Psalm 23, and Psalm 24 together give us a picture, I think, of the person and work of Christ. In Psalm 22, you have Jesus presented as the good shepherd. In Psalm 23, you have presented as the great shepherd. But in Psalm 24, you have Jesus presented as the chief shepherd. As this psalm begins, as psalms so often do, the psalmist orients our perspective on who God is. The Psalms often do that. That's why they're so popular. (laughs) That's why people read them so much. When you're sort of bewildered about what's going on in your life and in your world, it always helps to pick up the book of Psalms and read it because the Psalms have this way of orienting our thinking back onto who and what God is. And so that is how this Psalm begins in Psalm Chapter 24 and verse 1, it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Oh, that's helpful. Because honestly, sometimes in my world, I'm not really sure who's in charge. I get thinking I'm in charge, and then something like the coronavirus comes along, and I realize I'm clearly not in charge like I thought I was. Or I get to thinking maybe all my trust and confidence should be in the government. Enough said. Then I get thinking, well... I know maybe I really need to put my confidence and hope in my family and community, but they don't always pan out so well either. It's very helpful to know that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. 
You know God owns everything in the earth? He owns everything. He owns it all. He owns the minerals, the property, the flowers, the animals. It's all His. He owns it all. But the psalmist goes a step further. He doesn't just say that God owns everything that is. He goes on to say that God made everything that is. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It's not just enough to say that God's ownership extends to all the stuff. The psalmist says that God's ownership extends to all the people. Now, not all the people are in subjection to God. Not all the people are actually believing that he owns them. But whether they believe it or not, he owns them. Some of us are in subjection to God because we've been rightly related to him through the person and work of Christ. And some people are in rebellion against God, choosing to go their own way. But make no mistake, the psalmist is clear. God owns everybody. He doesn't just own all the stuff. He owns all the people too. Now I know modern science would debate with David in verse 2, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. There's always a hue and cry from somebody who says, no, no, no. The earth evolved over millions and billions of years. And you know, they keep adding billions and billions of years to the amount of time it took to evolve. They think that enough time will create the zoo from the goo. And that doesn't happen. But the Bible says that God made the world. And the Bible is more accurate than science anyway. So I'll just follow the Bible. God made the world and he owns the world. Now, if you're carefully considering that, you realize how great God must be. God spoke into existence the material substance of everything we see in the world. It's not like it took God a long time to piece together all these things. He literally spoke it, and it was. Well, if God could speak into existence everything that is, how can we possibly approach this kind of God? Imagine the pilgrims coming with the Ark of the Covenant, beginning a climb up the slope of Mount Zion. I can see it in my mind's eye, having been there several times. I can imagine them coming up the slopes of the hill towards Mount Zion. The Kidron Valley runs just below Mount Zion, fed with water from the Gihon Spring. And I can see them looking down at the beautiful crystal river that was flowing there. I can see them looking up towards the Mount of Olives and seeing the greenish silver of the olive trees growing on the slope. I can see them looking up at the new citadel of David that was built on the slopes of Mount Zion. And here they come, carrying the Ark of the Covenant in procession. And I can hear them singing, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and all who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. What a mighty, magnificent, omnipotent God. A God who is like this is surely above us and surely beyond us, don't you think? Now, we're rightly amazed at people who have special talents or abilities. I'm quite in awe of my son's ability to speak Afrikaans, all right? I've labored in Monday night classes for ages to try to learn Afrikaans, and I'm not much further than by a donkey, 
um, despite my greatest efforts, yet my son, who takes Afrikaans in high school, comes home and has fluent conversations. Well, he doesn't have conversations. He makes speeches because I can't talk back to him. But he can talk fluently in Afrikaans, and he can speak whatever kind of Afrikaans you want. I'm amazed at that talent or ability to just listen and pick up a language. I'm amazed at people who have all kinds of athletic prowess because I don't have any. And so... I'm amazed at people and their talents and abilities. I'm amazed by people who can create these majestic works of art and build incredible structures. But surely if we're amazed at what people can create and build, we are in awe of what God has made. There is really no comparison. Considering who God is, and that's what the psalmist has done in the first two verses. He's oriented our perspective on God and who he is. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world, and those who dwell in it. For he has founded it upon the seas, and he has established it upon the rivers, considering how great and majestic and mighty and omnipotent and transcendent our God is. Then comes the question in verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who could possibly come into the presence of this kind of God? Someone who has the power that God has. Somebody who has the holiness and perfection and might and majesty that God has. Someone who can do what God can do. How can you stand before him? How can you come into his presence? How can you ascend his holy hill? Who possibly could do that? Who can reach this God? Who is able to ascend? Who who can reach him? That's the sort of the first aspect of coming before this God. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can even get to a God like this? His greatness seems too great. Who can bring this God near? Who can possibly approach him or come before him? The second question is not of who. The second rather is not a a question of where. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? But who can stand in his holy place? A God of such purity and such perfection. Who will stand before him? The Israelites already knew this. Because the very ark that was now ascending Mount Zion had already struck Uzzah down. There was already a headstone that read, here lies Uzzah. And it said that because Uzzah dared to touch what was holy. You know, what if the ark had fallen off the ox cart into the dirt? Dirt can be wiped off. But Uzzah was a sinner and he touched what was holy. If a little dirt gets on what's holy, just wipe it off. But if sin defiles what is holy, then it must die. And so Uzzah is dead. No wonder people are asking, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? Who possibly could come before the Lord? You couldn't even touch a metal box which physically represented the person of God. You couldn't even touch that box and you died. That's how holy God was. So who possibly is going to stand before God? Well, in verse 4, there's an answer to this very difficult question. And we're perhaps a bit surprised at the answer in verse 4. It says, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear 
deceitfully, verse 4 actually seems to suggest that such a thing as coming before this God would actually be possible. There is a way, apparently, that you can approach this God. If you have clean hands and a pure heart, if you do not lift up your soul to what is false, vain, and empty, if you use your words carefully without deception, in short, if you are righteous, then you may come. Then you may ascend the holy hill and stand before this holy God, if these things are true of you. Now, at this point, most of us are going back over the past few weeks in our mind. Because we're wondering if we could go and stand before this holy God, if we could ascend the hill of the Lord. But when we read, he who has clean hands, and you're thinking, my hands have never been so clean. I was at the George Mall last week, and upon entering the mall, I sanitized my hands. And then without touching a single thing, I walked to a shop in the mall. And lo and behold, I sanitized my hands again when I went into that shop. And I don't even think I touched anything in the shop. I just looked around. And I left, and I went to another shop, and I sanitized my hands fully 12 times. I sanitized my hands in a matter of a couple of hours at the George Mall. My hands have never been so clean. But you know, of course, that's not what it's talking about. It's, have your hands ever done evil? Have your hands ever been used in some kind of transgression against God? Have you ever used your hands in a way that was unrighteous? You see, well, I think my hands are pretty good. Okay. What about your heart? What about what goes on in your mind, the things you think about, the imaginations of your thoughts? Oh, well, maybe your hands aren't so clean after all. What else is on the list? I don't think I've lifted up my soul to vanity. It does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I don't think I've done that. I know some people who do that, but I don't think I do that. This is what we do so often in our lives, isn't it? We compare ourselves to other people as though God compares you on some kind of graded standard with other people. And so we think to ourselves, well, yeah, that's not so bad. We've had a young man in our, he's not actually in our church, but he's a young man that we know of, um, lives up in Bangani in the northern, what we call the northern suburbs in Heisna. And we have interacted with him on a number of occasions, shared the gospel with him. We've had him do work for us and had him over for meals and stuff. The other, a few weeks ago, he was involved in a stabbing incident. I don't, it's a long and sordid mess. You know, there was a girl and blah, blah, blah. And he ended up stabbing somebody and he's been to court and in jail and now he's out. And uh, we, we continue to try to help him and minister grace to him. But, you know, compared to him, I've never stabbed a person. Never, not once. I thought about, oh, whoops. Uh, I've, I've never, do you see what I'm doing? This is what we do. We love this. We compare ourselves among ourselves, and then we feel pretty good about ourselves. But remember that God doesn't measure you against other people. God measures you against himself. And when God measures you against himself, Romans 3.23 will be true every single time. For all have come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So you want to answer the question, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Not me, not you. We won't ascend the hill of the Lord. You want to answer to the question, who will stand in his holy place? Not you, not on your merits. You won't stand there on my merits, not on my track record. Notice what verse 5 says. 
he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. You see, the one who ascends the hill needs righteousness imputed to him. The one who's going to come before God needs righteousness given to him. That's the one who will receive the blessing of the Lord. The one who has what is true in verse 4 will receive what is listed in verse 5. But you already know it's not you. So who is it that could possibly who is it that could possibly enter the presence of God? Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 23 it says therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy place. What? Wait a but I don't have confidence that I could ever possibly get close to a God who was like this. Where did this confidence come from? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near who shall ascend the hill of the Lord. We will ascend the hill of the Lord. We will stand in the holy place. How will we ever do that? Through Jesus. Through Jesus. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus ascends the hill for us. Jesus stands in the holy place. For us, And then he invites us to come. You need someone to, to declare you to be righteous because in and of yourself you are not righteous. And so verse 6 declares, seek him. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. If you seek him, he will be found of you. You will never succeed in your own self-salvation project. You will not succeed in trying to accomplish your own righteousness. But you will succeed if you stand in the righteousness of Christ. You will ascend the hill. You will stand in the holy place. You need someone who is perfect to make a way for those who are imperfect. You need someone sacrificed for those who are imperfect. Jesus is necessary in order for you to ascend the holy hill. A substitute was needed for you if you were ever to hope to stand in the holy place. But because Jesus climbed the hill of Calvary and died, you can ascend the hill of the Lord. So walk the hill, my friend. Go to God and stand there in his presence, purified in a brilliant white robe by the blood of Christ, declared righteous by faith in him. Stand in that holy place. You stand there not having your own righteousness but having the righteousness of Christ. Your hands were dirty. Your mouth was filthy. Your thoughts corrupt, but now you're cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Praise be to God. You have entered his presence, not on your own merits, but on the merits of him who won the victory for you. Incidentally, it's as though the psalmist recognizes that the coming Messiah will win that victory for us, verses 7 to 10. And it's interesting because... Verses 7 to 10 are set up like a conversation between the people who are ascending up with this Ark of the Covenant and the gates through which they must enter. Now, gates don't talk, but hey, this is a song, and anything can happen in a song, right? It's what we call poetic license. And so the people begin to talk to the gate as they approach. And in verse 7, they say, Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. 
They say to the gates, listen, gates, open as wide as you can to receive the king of glory who is coming. Look sharp. Somebody important is arriving. It's as though the pilgrims are speaking to the gates as they approach, and the gates reply, why should we open wide? Why should we lift ourselves up? Who possibly is this king of glory for whom we must prepare such a grand entrance? Verse 8, who is this king of glory? The gates speak back, and the people say, it is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Oh, it's him. Remember when Israel stood on the banks of the far shore, having crossed over the Red Sea? And in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13, they're looking back across the sea, and Moses lifts his rod, and he's about ready to speak, and the water is going to close in over the Egyptian army, who is in hot pursuit of the Israelites. And they stand there on the shore of the Red Sea. And in Exodus chapter 14 and verse 13, Moses says this, Stand still and see the salvation of our God. And it's as though these pilgrims are saying to the gates, get ready, because the one who can ascend the hill, the one who has secured salvation, the one who has made a way is coming. The Lord will fight for you. The Lord will go before you. And so in verse 9, the call comes again, lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors that the king of glory may come in. And in verse 10, I kind of imagine that they say this all together. Who is this king of glory? And the gates and the people, they all speak. And they say, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He is the king of glory. What a song. What a song. It's amazing. We had this preacher back when I was in Bible college. He was a missionary to Suriname in Zaire, back when there was such a thing as Zaire. And he would split his time between those two mission fields, and he told the most amazing stories. Now, the thing about missionaries, you probably know this already, but missionaries love stories. And I think over time, they become more glorious in the mind than they were in the reality. But Daryl Champlin, Dr. Daryl Champlin, he used to come to Northland every year for missionary conference, and he was, we were at Obamas kids because we had a lot of boring speakers in chapel. But Daryl Chamberlain was anything but boring. He would tell the story of the dancing witch doctor who would crush the bottles, you know, and they would have these demonic sort of ceremonies where they're dancing around the fire and beating the drums and people would step on the glass and he was up in a tree watching one night and he decided, okay, I got to show these people that the power of God is real. So he took off his socks and his shoes and he climbed down out of the tree and he stomped on the glass and he walked on the hot coals and the next morning, they came to his house in the village, and they didn't knock on the door. I remember this all coming back to me now. They didn't knock on the door. I just, I'm a missionary, and this has never happened to me. But anyway, they, they came to the door, and they didn't knock, apparently, where he stayed. They said, so somebody at the door made this noise, and they came in the house, and they said, missionary, we want to see your feet. And he showed them his feet, and there wasn't a mark on his feet. And I could tell it in the style that Daryl Champlin took, because he had a very distinctive style. But Daryl Champlin would recite this, verse 7 to verse 10, the song. And I remember as a kid in Bible college sitting there just being like, wow, (laughs) because this is such a great song. It's such a vivid image of these gates swelling up to open as wide as they can to receive the king of glory. But you know, when Jesus came, because this is the Psalms, this is King David, 
fast forward through roughly uh, several hundred years of history, and Jesus does come. But you know what you discover when Jesus comes? No gates flung open. No gates lifted up for this grand entrance of some coming king. No, in fact, quite the opposite thing happened. Just when we were getting all excited because the one who was promised had come, the one who could ascend the hill had come, the one who could stand in the holy place had finally come, his coming was not like we anticipated. It was not like Psalm 24 said it would be. And so perhaps some people wonder, is this really the one? Is this really the king of glory? No gates opened to welcome Jesus when he first came. He came as the suffering servant of the Lord. And so we wonder, well, how can a psalm like this be true? Because it describes something that really didn't happen. And then I say, yes, it's true. When Jesus came the first time, it was like that. But listen, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes the second time, yes, I know there's the rapture and the church goes up. Trust me, I am I have my eschatological ducks in a row. So don't attack me after church. I think you said, you don't know. When Christ comes the second time, after everything's finished, and he has defeated the armies of the wicked one in the battle to end all battles, the battle of Armageddon, when that finally happens, Jesus will ride on a stallion into the city of Jerusalem. And then we will say, Open wide, you gates. Be lifted up. The king of glory is coming. Revelation chapter 5 paints the picture for us. John is standing and he's weeping. And an angel comes to John and says, why are you weeping? And John says, I can't find anybody worthy to open the scroll. What are we going to do? And the angel says, John, 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 don't cry. Well, I can't describe it as well as it's written in Revelation chapter 5. So let me read it. I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And they sang a new song in verse 9, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign in the earth. And I looked, and I heard around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? 
the Lord of hosts. He is the king of what has God done for you in Christ? He has enabled you because he ascended the hill, because he can stand in the holy place, offering himself as the perfect sacrifice. What has he done for you? He has made it possible for you to do the same thing, to come into the presence of God, to stand in his throne room, to boldly make your request. You can come into the holy, overwhelming presence of God, who Paul says dwells in inexpressible light. You can come because of Jesus. But if you don't know Jesus, you can't come. So you must know him. You must trust in him by faith. You come on the merits of King Jesus when you enter the throne room of God. But if you know him, friend, what a blessed privilege to be a child of God. I trust your heart is encouraged and uplifted by the word this morning as we've considered Psalm 24. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, the very fact that I can call you Father and come in a moment like this, in this room, in this city, in this province, in this nation, in this world, the very fact that I can come to you is fully dependent on the work of Christ who shed his blood on my behalf and who will one day return as king and I will reign with him. So Father, I don't come on my own merits. I don't come into your presence claiming that I have some kind of righteousness because goodness knows I don't. But I come through Christ and I want to say thank you. I want to say that without Christ, where would I be? Where would we all be? So thank you for sending Christ. Thank you for the richness of the Psalms who open our eyes and in poetic and song-like form give us a vision of your plan for the ages. God, we thank you. Accept our song that we sing as an offering of our praise and thanksgiving to you. Because we ask these things, Jesus, for his sake.